morning. As Mike said, we're going to be reading Ruth chapter 4. So let's read. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Mahalon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Mahalon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home, like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, 
Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. The book of Ruth has been called a biblical soap opera. And you can see why. It's got tragedy to rival EastEnders. And this is why I can't bear EastEnders, because it's so depressing. But Ruth, the, the book of Ruth begins with the first five verses, uh, fam- severe famine, People are starving to death. They leave their family home. They go and live in a place where they're not welcome. Uh, Then the husband dies. Oh, my. Then at least the two sons get married. But guess what? After 10 years, they don't have any children. No one knows why. And then the two sons die. So you have the book begins with three widows weeping. I mean, this is like EastEnders. The only difference is they're not at the pub. And there they are weeping. And the mother-in-law says to them, Girls, go back to your own family because I've got nothing to offer you. My, my life is empty. I'm going to go back to Bethlehem and I've got nothing now. I've got no future. So one of the girls does it and you can't blame her. Off she goes. But Ruth makes an extraordinary promise. She will stay and pledge her life and her love to Naomi. And so back they go. Now, there's tragedy. The book also has drama to rival Coronation Street, uh, our own homegrown uh, soap opera here in Manchester, the longest running soap opera in the UK. And, and because it, it has twists and turns and things happen and it, it seems like there's tragedy. But when they get home, guess what? The barley harvest is beginning. So obviously the famine's over. And then Ruth says she's going to take advantage of the social security system. Um, she's going to go and do gleaning, which is picking up bits of grain in the fields that the, the, the farm workers have, have dropped and going around the edges of the field where they don't harvest. So she goes off gleaning, and she just happens to go into the field of a man called Boaz. And Boaz turns out to be someone who could make all the difference in the world to their life story. So there's drama. There's Boaz, and he happens to turn up that day. And he sees her, and he asks about her. And then he he, he just goes above and beyond in terms of providing for her and her mother-in-law. And he's, he's kind, and he's gracious, and he's generous, and he... He makes provision for her and protects her. And he says, look, take this, make sure she gets enough food. And she goes home with a with an amazing bundle of an ephah of grain, a huge weight of, of grain. So it's got tragedy. It's got drama. It's got hopes and fears. It's got love and tears. And each chapter is like an act in a play. And today we're reaching the fourth and final act. And as we reach the end, as we come into the fourth chapter, we are full of hope because in Acts chapter, Acts chapter, excuse me, in chapter three, Naomi came up with this audacious plan to save the family fortunes. Here's the plan. It was it was involving her Moabite daughter, Ruth, breaking all the social rules. She advised her to uh, scrub up well, put on her perfume and uh, look on her best frock and go down late at night to the threshing floor uh, where Boaz was going to be sleeping on the grain to protect his crops. And, and, and Ruth was going to propose marriage to Boaz, which is just turning the, all the cultural tables on their head because Ruth's younger and Boaz is older. Ruth's a woman, Boaz, Boaz is a man. Ruth is a, is a refugee immigrant. Boaz is a member of the community, the Israelites, and this sort of thing never happens. In fact, she's putting herself at grave personal danger and taking risk because of what could happen out there in the threshing floor. So in risk of this danger and shame, Ruth did take the big step out of her love, not for Boaz, but for Naomi. 
And she, she pledged herself to Naomi for life. She made this great step of faith. And now she keeps her promise. And Boaz responded magnificently, as we all hoped he would. He understood the purity of her intentions and he honoured them. And then as an initial pledge of his commitment to the family to do what he could to rescue them, he gave a fantastic gift of barley, which Ruth took back home. But we know it's still all to play for at this point. And as chapter four opens, the drama isn't over. Boaz has made it clear that although he wants to be the guardian redeemer of the family, there's another relative who's got first dibs. He's got the first claim because he's more closely related to Naomi and he could redeem the land. Now, we need to understand what's really at stake here because we're dealing with a, a situation from over a thousand years BC uh, and a very different culture. The biggest issue in our minds, probably at this moment in the book, is about love, romance and marriage. But that's not what the early readers of this book are thinking about at all. The biggest question in their minds is, what's going to happen to the land? That's the real crisis. What's going to happen to the land? You see, in the man's world of the ancient Near East, which was patriarchal, women couldn't inherit. And so with the husband dead and the sons dead, Naomi cannot hold on to her ancestral home. It is forfeit. The land will go. She has no male heir to inherit. She's too old to have another child. Ruth is a refugee widow and her prospects of childbearing aren't great because she's been uh, infertile for 10 years. So if somebody else from another clan or tribe can come in, they can acquire that property and take it from them for good. And the family name will be gone forever. It will be as if Elimelech's line never existed. Now, even we in our individualistic Western culture can feel some of the resonance of that emotionally. It will be as if they'd never existed. Now, for the early readers, they are sitting on the edge of their seat because they want redemption. They're hoping something's going to happen to turn this situation around and save the family. And I think we're all hoping that Boaz will do it because he seems like a, such a great guy. Now, I want to spend... Um, few minutes with you today on these three scenes in the chapter uh, three scenes in this wonderful chapter that sort of move from one thing to another there's the city gate the baby shower and the family tree and I want to show how they're all connected uh, because there's one big idea that ties it all together and here it is and I think Jez is going to put it up on the screen costly redemption leads to fullness in life in God's big picture Costly redemption leads to fullness and life in God's big picture. Firstly, then, the city gate. And here we see a costly redemption, verses 1 to 12. The action begins right away. And there you have it uh, with the word meanwhile. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. There's another hint there at the divine hand behind the scenes of the human drama because the timing is perfect. Boaz has said he's going to go to the city gate to meet this uh, other potential guardian redeemer and lo and behold just as he gets there the man comes along and Boaz begins to organize things. It's very interesting. He says come over here and sit down. So he went and sat down and our version of the the uh, English Bible and, and I think most English Bibles say come over here my friend 
But actually, he doesn't say the normal words for my friend. So the scholars think uh, this probably should be translated a different way because he uses this unusual term, which is this, Peloni Almoni. Come here, Peloni Almoni. Now, what does it mean? The funny thing is, it means such and such, or uh, so and so, or no name. <laughs> it's not named. See, some scholars have even translated it, Mr. No Name. Others have said so and so. The point is, the other guardian redeemer has no name in the story. And in the story that's absolutely obsessed with names, and the book ends with a load of names, that's very significant. See, it's already begun to cast a slightly negative light on this man's character, because it turns out that he is a bit of a so-and-so. Verse 2, Boaz takes 10 of the elders of the town and he asks them to sit. Now, what's going on here? The city gate in the ancient world was like the town hall. It's where official business is done. It's where you go to do legal transactions, to settle disputes, uh, boundary issues, property deals. They're all done at the city gate. And in a culture where most of the people can't read and write, you need witnesses to important business. Hence, Boaz calls 10 elders, community leaders, to come and sit. And everyone knows that what's going on here, it's time to pay attention because a serious piece of business is being discussed. Only in this case, to be blunt, it's a little bit formal to do this when what they're really talking about is something that could be settled between the two men. It's a family matter. And in verses 3 to 4, Boaz describes a situation that could have been done quietly. Uh, He says, um, Naomi, who's come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I'm the next in line. Now, business is business. The individual who we are calling Mr. So-and-so understands that the land is available because Naomi's a widow. So he knows He'd have to invest in this land to buy it and he'll probably have to invest in it to turn it around and get it farmable again because it's lain fallow for some years. He'll also have to maintain the old widow until she dies. That would be part of the arrangement. But he can see that this is a good deal because Naomi isn't going to live forever. And when she dies, he will keep that land and all its crops and he'll pass it on to his family. So he will be expanding his portfolio and the wealth of his, his family by buying the land. So as you notice, he immediately says in verse 4, I will redeem it. Of course he will. And this is where Boaz plays his trump card. Because he's very savvy. In the full hearing of the community leaders, he then announces that the man would also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Now, the fine details of this are somewhat lost on us, aren't they? Because we don't live in their culture. But here's what's going on. According to the law of the guardian redeemer, the man has a moral obligation to marry Ruth, if he's going to do the decent thing, in order to give an heir to the family. But he doesn't have to do it. 
It's not a legal requirement. And the problem with redeeming the land and marrying the widow is that there's a chance that the widow will conceive and give birth to a son. And if she does, that land will go straight back to her family. The guardian redeemer will be empty-handed, in spite of all his investment, and all of his investment will revert back to the line of Elimelech. So you see what's happening here. To do that, to marry Ruth as well, is going to endanger Mr. So-and-so's wealth and his family's holdings. And this was a step that he was unwilling to take. It was just too costly. Now, there could have been a sneaky way around this, a kind of legal loophole, which was that he could have bought the land from Naomi and then quietly and privately refused to marry Ruth and he'd still be acting within the law. He could have had his cake and eaten it. Technically, it would have been legal, but it's a pretty shameful way to treat a couple of widows, isn't it? And so what Boaz has done by bringing this whole transaction out into the public square is force the man's hand. He's basically saying, listen, so-and-so, if you're going to buy this land, you need to do the right thing by the family. And redemption is costly. So the man steps back like he's just trodden on a snake. Verse 6 speaks for itself. <laughs> he says, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I can't do it. And once again, Boaz speaks magnificently. He announces to the elders and all the people, of course, this is what he's been planning. Today, you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. And the community see this, and they know what he's done, and they know it's cost him, and that he's not done it for personal gain. And they see the goodness in it. And so they reply in verse 11, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. May, may God make you a, a famous person and, and establish your name forever and make your family great. And, and of course, their prayer was answered because here we are today in 2021 talking about Boaz and there's even a charity in Manchester called the Boaz Trust which does work with asylum seekers and refugees in honour of his name. You see, they all know that redemption is costly and they celebrate that Boaz has done a noble thing. His own property estate, his own interests won't gain by this but by his redemption he has saved a family he is maintaining the name of the dead so that his name will not disappear. He saved a family. That's the city gate. Second scene is a baby shower. I've never been to a baby shower, um, but they seem to be reserved for, for ladies. My wife's been to loads of them and I always hear about them when she comes back. And this is, here we see this, the gracious hand of God at work. You know, the text doesn't make much of it, but listen to this, uh, verse 13. Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and when he made love to her the Lord 
enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. We remember that back in chapter 10, chapter 1, uh, Ruth was married for 10 years and hadn't given birth. But here there's a baby pretty quickly. Now, given what we know of the culture of that time, when, with her first marriage, they would have been trying for a baby for 10 years. And it didn't happen. We don't know why. We don't know whether there were fertility issues to do with her husband or, or with Ruth herself. But the Bible's view is that having children is not a biological entitlement. It's a gift from God. It's a consistent view of the Bible. And it's easy to forget that in our culture where we have various technological ways to make childbirth possible, and some of them are appropriate. But ultimately, the Bible's view is that that having a child is a gift from God, and the fact that she conceived this time was that the Lord enabled it. He's the giver of life. And so the women hold this great baby shower. They're speaking and probably eating some great food and celebrating, and they're passing around this little tot called Obed, who's probably wrapped in a swaddling cloth, and uh, crying and and wanting some milk and they're smiling and fussing and it's a great time and notice that that the focus of the celebration is not actually really Obed nor is it Ruth the focus is Naomi the focus is grandma why here's what they say praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you Naomi without a guardian redeemer may he become famous throughout Israel he will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth what's going on here again let's bridge the gap from that culture to our times everything that really matters in life has been restored to Naomi everything that really matters in life has been restored to her What does all this stuff about having land and having your family line continue really mean? What does it mean to us? Fundamentally, it's all about security and significance. Security and significance. And that's where it touches our lives. Security. How are we going to be able to thrive in life? Not just scrape through each day and somehow survive it. How are we going to be secure enough? that we can enjoy life and all its goodness. Our security frequently feels quite fragile, doesn't it? And when it's threatened, everything seems to go to pot. I mean, you you may have felt this yourself in the last year. You know, you you may even be a healthy, a fit person, but you've begun to worry about health because you hear all these stories about people getting coronavirus and even young, healthy people getting long COVID and just being wiped out. And then people who, who we know who've, had it and the relatives died or it's great jeopardy we're, we're so insecure at that level of physical health and we're not even talking about finances now but that's a massive area for some of us that you just don't know you haven't got three months savings you haven't got one month savings and if the government changes tax credits and benefits you could really be going without you could you, you, a lot of people feel they're not very far from being homeless we're so insecure And then there's the emotional, relational insecurity that we feel we're afraid of being lonely, afraid of being left on the shelf. Will there be someone for me? Or others worry about having children. There's so much in life we're not secure about. 
And, and so people then were just the same. And for them, security is absolutely bound up in the ancestral home and the land. And if you've lost that, you've lost everything. And the second thing is significance. Because we all want our lives to matter. We all want our lives to count for something. And if you doubt this, if you doubt what I'm saying about yourself, just think about how your heart responds when you're snubbed. Or when you're in a group and other people get all the attention. Somebody else who's more popular or better looking or a big personality. Or when maybe you meet someone who you like or admire and they actually can't remember you or they can't remember your name. Or you feel overlooked by somebody you like or, or by some people. How it feels to be just feel that you're average in everything. You know, these are all signs that we really, really want significance. We want our lives to matter, to count for something. We don't want to die and, and just nobody remember us. There's nothing left. And so did they. And being someone, just being someone is wrapped up in being part of a family line that doesn't become extinct. That's what's going on here. And so the book of Ruth, the whole book, is a story of a journey from emptiness and death back to fullness and life. Emptiness and death at the start, where Naomi's empty. She's got nothing left in her life. She, there's, there's no food. There's physical emptiness. There's, there's emotional emptiness. Back to fullness and life. And here we are at the end. Abundant grain, abundant food, home, land, future, a baby, the family line will continue. They won't become extinct. At the start of the book, she lost everything. She declared she was no longer to be called Naomi, which means pleasant, but to be called Mara, which means bitter. She said, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter, I went away full. The Lord has brought me back empty. And now at the end of the story, we have this wonderful reversal, this transformation. Naomi's world is taken from emptiness and death back to fullness and life. And as she sits with this baby on her lap and on her shoulder and patting his back, the women remark that the Lord has given Obed. And this son will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth. All this happens because of the costly redemption that Boaz accomplished. And it's led to fullness and joy in life. Remember that theme sentence? Costly redemption leads to fullness and life. And that's the pattern of God's work in the world. God's work, detailed work in our lives and the pattern in the whole pages of scripture. God's big picture. And this is where my final point is and the final uh, part of that theme sentence. Costly redemption leads to fullness in life in God's big picture. And God's big picture is the family tree. And there we are, verse 18. This then is the family line of Perez. And Hannah did a brilliant job of reading all those names. And you're thinking, if I'm really honest, that's not a very exciting way to finish a book, is it? I mean, a lot of books of, of this nature might end with the line, and they all lived happily ever after. But... <laughs> I mean, that would have been a cliche, but in some ways, to us, it's better than saying, and this is the family line of Perez. And you're like, oh, right. But the writer is doing something really important here. And 
in his wisdom, he's pulling back the camera and giving us the, the big picture, the historical overview. And what he gives us is a genealogy. Now, before you go to sleep, let me point out that genealogies are very important in the Bible. And let me tell you a fact that most of us don't know, which is that in the Old Testament, there are only three ten-member genealogies. So there are only three times in the Old Testament where there's a genealogy, family tree, with ten members in it. And each time, the tenth member is a person of incredible significance. So what are those three ten-member genealogies? The first one comes before the flood, very early in human history. And it's a family tree found in Genesis chapter 5. And it's a ten-member genealogy that ends with Noah. And Noah is significant because God used him to save humanity, to save humankind from destruction of the flood, and to bring about a kind of new creation. Because when Noah and his family come out of the ark with the animals, it's full of imagery of the first creation, only it's a new start. Noah's name means, was derived from the word for rest. And the Bible is about a quest for rest. And in Noah we see that God can bring rest through his rescuer. So Noah is a very important figure and God makes a promise to him with the whole of creation. The second ten-member genealogy is after the flood. It's in Genesis chapter 11. And who's the tenth member this time? Abraham. Father Abraham, the father of faith. The one that God made the extraordinary promise to, that through Abraham's family, every family on earth would be blessed. So God will fulfill his desires to call back his, create, his lost creation and mend it through the family of Abraham. So that's very significant. You see how these genealogies work? Now the third one is here. It's the end of the book of Ruth, would you believe it? And who's the tenth member? Look at your Bible. The last word in the book is David. Now, why is David so significant? Because through him, God will unite the tribes. God will form the people into a nation that will live in safety, security, peace and plenty. This book of Ruth is set in the, in the time of the judges. It's the dark ages. It's the wild west. It's a horrific time. Grim things happen in the book of Judges. The book of Judges ends with a scene that I won't talk about now because there are children watching. It's a horrible time. But through David, for the first time, the people were safe from their enemies. He brings back God's Ark of the Covenant to the temple. He makes plans for the temple. He defeats the warring peoples around. That was a great king, David. God's king, God's man, the man after God's own heart, the one God used to establish the nation. And there's God's big picture. Behind the scenes, unknown to us tiny humans in the ebb and flow of our little lives and the flow of history, the living God is at work. He's the director behind each of our stories. And what we learn from this little drama, this soap opera of Ruth, is that God all along was actually at work, securing the family line that would lead to the Messiah, David, God's anointed king. And that gave great comfort to the first people who read this because they were living in a time where the nation wasn't doing well. Many of the people who read this were, were living in a time where the nation was divided or in exile. 
And so they could cling on to the story and know that somehow, when there's emptiness and death, God is still working to bring about a salvation through a king. So how do you know that he's not doing something similar in your life? How do you know? We're ordinary people, but we have an extraordinary God. You don't know what he's doing at any moment. But your life, Christian friend, your life is contributing a verse to the great song of salvation. So that's how the story ends. But you know it's not where the Bible ends. Because if you think about that theme sentence again, there's even more glory to come. Costly redemption leads to fullness and life. In God's big picture. Redemption. How is it accomplished? How is somebody redeemed from a terrible situation or from failure? We even use it in our own culture, don't we? We say, oh, you know, they were doing really badly, but that last catch in the game redeemed, redeemed him. Or that last exam that I did redeemed, redeemed the, uh, the grade. In the bigger picture, redemption is accomplished through somebody paying a cost. And we've seen that in the story that the Mr. So-and-so didn't want to pay the cost. It was too costly. Someone has to give themselves sacrificially for others. And they do it to rescue them, but they have to pay a cost. And what we have in this book is a picture of Jesus. Boaz is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ because of his kindness, his, his consistent kindness to the family all through the story, because of his willingness to take the step and because of his payment of the price Boaz is willing to lose for the sake of another to rescue his bride's family and Jesus Christ is the greater Boaz he too is kind the letter to Titus says that when the kindness of our God and Saviour appeared he saved us and that's what Jesus did. Out of sheer kindness, loyal love, sacrificial love, he made the journey from heaven to earth, lived the life, the perfect life we should have lived, and died the death that we deserved on the cross and rose to eternal life. Jesus paid the costly price to rescue, redeem his people, to buy us back from our slavery, from our emptiness, from our death. And to give us freedom and fullness and life. Life eternal in the world to come. Jesus is the greater Boaz. What should this redemption do to our character? How should stories like this change us? I think they should make us realise that we too can be extraordinary that we too can show the kindness of God to other people, that we too can be involved in personal sacrifice that leads to the redemption of others. So let me encourage you as we have a moment of silence and pray to ask, Lord, where do you want me to show sacrificial kindness? And to pray, Lord, thank you for how you've rescued me. Let's pray.
when the kindness of our God and Saviour appeared, he saved us. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own mercy. Lord, thank you for this delightful story and thank you for the bigger story that it echoes and anticipates. And thank you that our story matters too because of the one who's called us and the one who guarantees that our name won't end, that we won't become extinct, that we won't enter the realm of death. But our name is written in your book because Jesus has written it there. Grant us to see how much we mean to you, Lord, and grant us, give us that kindness of heart that you have in yourself. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.